pixel pizza. Did she say pizza? Your ultimate source for chiptunes, video game talk, and pepperoni. Delivered to you from Los Angeles and into the digital cyberspace of the 2020s. Pizza power! That's right, when super giant pizza. I want a large, thick crust with double cheese, ham, pepperoni. Pizza time. Welcome back to Pixel Pizza. You just listened to the track Quantum Rain by our chiptune artist of the week, Pachi Mochi. And now we are here with our interview of the episode. And if you heard last episode, I mentioned that this was going to be a two-part special across two weeks, and I am very lucky and fortunate enough to have spoken with Paula Rogers of Sweet Baby Inc., the talented writer, and now I am speaking with another talented member of the team. Her new and noteworthy works include Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Hyperlight Breaker, and Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League, to name a few, and uh, this is Kim Belair. How are you doing, Kim? I'm doing great. It's good to meet you. Good to meet you as well. So I like to start off my show by asking, when in your life did you know you wanted to work in games? Wow. So I think when it comes to when in my life I knew, that's a great question because I think I didn't know until I was asked to work in games, but I think that I always had a feeling that it was something I would like to do, but didn't have the road there. Like, I think I've always been someone who was really into video games. Like I was obsessed with uh, Earthbound growing up with Donkey Kong Country 1 and 2 with um, Super Mario RPG. Like I played so much stuff and then on the computer, I played a, a ton as well. But I think it's it's funny because Earthbound was something that I played and I started to realize as I read like the the, the player's guide, which was kind of done as like a big map, right? It was like a big dive like deep dive into the world of earthbound i was like huh there's like a world here there's there's a story being told there's people who are are telling these stories and 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 putting it in the game and so i think in a lot of ways like i started to borrow kind of storytelling styles that i saw but i didn't even consider i never made that connection for so many years that like oh i could actually do that and then by the time i was kind of old enough i was working in marketing i that's, that's my my degree is in and i was doing a lot of like writing and 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 some fiction and some comic stuff like i had worked in that area, but it wasn't until I started at Ubisoft um, as a community developer that I actually moved into games writing. And even then I was like, oh, this is something that like, it's very cool, but I don't know if it's it's, it's entirely for me. And so my first project, uh, Assassin's Creed Syndicate, was kind of my first dive into any kind of game writing with the intent of going into game writing. I had some stuff in Far Cry 4 prior to that because of my work in community development. We had done some like kind of narrative work for um kind of the pre-game that ended up being reflected in the game but that was the first time that i realized oh this is a system that works this way and now i understand it and it was once i understood it that i was like oh okay i can think i can do this too yeah was it hard getting sort of acclimated to that system because especially with ubisoft it's yeah have their own formula and 
I'm sure. Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna say, yeah, they have their own formula. Plus, it was like a deeply like challenging workspace in a lot of different ways for a lot of the reasons that you know Ubisoft has been in the press for all the mm -hmm. the Me Too stuff and just oh, like yeah. the challenges they faced over the years, right? So the the environment, yeah, the environment was was not was not certainly ideal in a lot of ways. But onboarding onto a project at Ubisoft, what I'll say for it is that. Ubisoft often gets referred to kind of because of its size and because of its ability to kind of create a lot of things. They kind of refer to it as kind of that factory or machine. And I think what it has is a very, very rigorous and very strong pipeline. And I think that, you know, there are always things to change. And I think that the ways that we work should change. But seeing that pipeline at work and understanding very well, like the different roles and seeing the different kind of cogs in that machine and seeing the different kinds of people creating things and seeing the ways that like folks work together was super educational for me, both in terms of this is how you do it. And now I feel comfortable taking that knowledge elsewhere or, or applying it here. And also it was able to see like, oh, these are some flaws in that plan or these are some kind of structural issues that I think could be, could be remedied. But you really just get an education in that situation. And, and that's what I'm, I think was really, really valuable. That's awesome. Yeah. And so those were the lessons you were able to take. Did you start Sweet Baby like immediately after your time there or were there things in between? So I left Ubisoft in uh, February of 2020, I think, or just a little bit before maybe. And my idea was at the time just going freelance to work on contracts. And I started at a company called Reflector. And, and that was actually, it ended up being like an even more challenging workspace workplace than, than Ubisoft. But what it allowed me to do was start to like, I, I because I was on contract, I was able to do other stuff. I, I wrote, wrote Neocab in that time or on Neocab at the time. Um, that's where, how I met Paula, actually. She was, she was right. my lead on that project. And I got the, I started working with, um, friends who I would I would create Sweet Baby with in that time. And we realized through those spaces that what we really loved was outside of that structure, outside of like the corporate structure that was very hard to deal with and uh, then the issues there. We loved the art of telling stories. We loved the, the work of it. And we loved working with uh, outside teams and different clients that we had to build a story with. And that kind of became formative because we would call all of the clients who we loved working with, who were really, really fun and, 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 and kind and empathetic and who we could have great collaboration with. We were like, man, those people were such sweet babies. And so <laughs> that's kind of the philosophy that we ended up going in with where we were like, hey, we really like storytelling. We love working with a range of different people on a lot of different kinds of stories. What if we created a space where we can do that? And at first it became like a contractor, like that's just work together thing. And then what it grew into was now a company that is about 14 people working together on a variety of different stories. And also with a secondary goal of like bringing new and marginalized folks into the industry to kind of give them a leg up to help integrate folks into teams because of what I kind of talked about earlier, which is a lot of folks like me when I was young, look at games and have the capacity for it, have the interest in it, but don't even realize you can, there are steps and there are clear ways to, to do this and we can help you get connected with those. Yeah, it very much feels like a, a black box when you're looking from the outside. The yes. process, it's, it's very... Uh, yeah, and that for me is one of the biggest problems that we have in games because it's like there are so many people who could work in it, who should work in it, and who I think deserve to, but it's just so opaque. Like, how do you get in? And I think it's often we see, okay, a job posting goes up and then hundreds or thousands of people apply to it and one person might get it, but most people don't even know like what happened to their application. So they don't know, yeah. was my application bad? Was it good, but never got seen? Was it good, but not good enough? Was it some, like, was something else wrong with it? And so there's this weird like 
cycle that's kind of happening where you're like, I don't really know the answers to it, but I'm getting caught up and I think we can just kind of break out of that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And uh, one of the questions I had, because yeah, I saw that, you know, for helping people break into the industry is something that you're passionate about is especially right now with the, uh, I mean, sort of the lingering effects of the pandemic. Yes. Uh, how, what kind of advice do you have for people to get noticed now? Because before that, certainly you could go to PAXs, you could go to E3s yes. and GDCs and connect with people there. I have, but yeah, now it's just, it seems infinitely harder. Yeah, well, I think it's both. I think it's harder and easier because I think the GDC and and kind of conference route created one issue, which was you had to be able to have, like you had to have the capacity to go to that thing. You had to have the, the money or the backing or, or the support in general and the resources to get to those places. But I think that what the, the post-pandemic thing has done is remote opportunities are now more prevalent, right? Which creates more opportunities, but also, of course, more competition, right? Because now we're quote unquote, competing, or at least aiming for, for similar spaces in a single platform, the internet, right? Instead of going like, okay, I went to GEC and I talked to some people here. It's like, we're all here. But I think that what I would say and what more and more is is true for me is it's creating, it's just creating your own kinds of work or putting your work out there. And I know that that's like a very like, oh, put, put your work out there and someone's going to see it. But when I say put it out there, I mean like show what you can do and connect to people who like what you can do or who do things that you want to be doing. And for me, the one of the biggest lessons that I try to impart is like, if you're going to show something, if you're going to ask someone to look at something, assume that, that you are are taking their time and think about what you're going to give. Like when you are, and the same applies for like when you're entering any community where it's like, hey, I want to come in here and improve my skills. I have skills in this. Is there anything you can share? Because ideally, right, everyone's work is going to be compensated in, in some way. But in a realistic scenario, most people are are not able to get funding for a game or they're able to create like a twine thing for free, right? And they're able to show something, but it still takes time to, to revive or to review it, to, to look at it. And so I think it's, it's for me, it's always about finding community. It's about saying, if you are a games writer, find communities of games writers and ask them what they're doing or take, like say that, you know, you're able to, to provide this or, or this perspective, or this is where you can kind of fit into the, into a role or, or into a, a community or into a project. And, I think that is for me like the the most sustainable way to do it is find is finding communities of people who are who are like minded and also who have a utility for a writer because I think that writers groups are going to give you educational opportunities they're going to give you times like ways to learn and ways to kind of hone your own skills but one thing I I often say is for the actual like acquisition of like roles often writers already have the jobs that you would want right so oftentimes it's about finding teams even game jams or or communities or spaces where writing is needed the places where there's a and, and i think like a game jam is a good example because often um you know writers want to participate but everybody has kind of a a, a writer <laughs> everyone has a writer and they end up kind of feeling a little bit ostracized in those game jams because they only come in at the end or the beginning. Yeah. And I think thinking about it like that is like, where else can you help? What kinds of design, how can you help the designer? How can you help the artist with your 
with your skills and where can you fit in to add to become part of like a more holistic process rather than just saying like, okay, I'm here to write and just do that. So it's like finding a space in a community and, and in a system and in a, in a team versus just going, okay, I'm going to go for writing 100%. Yeah. I remember there was a time where I was, when I was back living in New York, I'm in LA now, I participated in some game jams with play crafting and they, I just, you know, met random people on teams and I wanted to write and I wanted to I'd do some voiceover and, you know, I, I was able to incorporate those things, but uh, for so much of it, you know, it was just working day and night and I, I did some programming, I did some sound design just to be supportive, and even though I had no idea what I was doing, yeah, I at least felt like I was offering some kind of support. Yeah. And I think that is so valuable. And it's what we call sweet baby, like narrative development, because I think when we kind of started out, we were thinking, okay, we're writers, we're going to be writing stuff, but that has evolved into, you know, it's, it's narrative design, it's narrative direction, it's staffing a writer's room. It's considering sensitivity through a lens of, of narrative criticism and vice versa. It's so many different aspects of story and, Sometimes it's working with artists to talk through why certain things should be a certain way. And I think that is like how to perceive the role that you play in a community or in a game. Like if you come in and you go, okay, I only want to, to, to do the writing, right? You end up kind of being blocked out of certain other things that you could mm -hmm that you could be doing that are more about story. And I think that's actually something that kept me out of, of games writing early on is that I often encountered this perception where like writers were very siloed and we're not being listened to or we're not listening or whatever it was. Like there was a sense that they were so separate from the process that it felt like, oh, I don't know if I want to sit on the outside in this way. And so, yeah, that's all a lot of words to say. I think that the best way to kind of like soft break into the industry, because for me, breaking in is a process that takes a, a long time to find your own place, right? Like what does breaking in mean? Is like, is it getting your first job? Is it getting a getting to a place where you feel it's your career? Is it switching jobs for this? Like, what is that? And I think this for me that the quote unquote soft way to think about it is a process by which you find the job that you're going to do by doing a lot of different kinds of that job. Hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a good approach to have and sort of rethinking what it means to break in and not especially pressuring yourself to feel like you have to uh, get that first job or get a, to a big company or something like that. Yeah. And it's funny because I think of, so I know some folks who like will go to a big company and they'll burn out after like a couple of years or something. And for them that, you know, that those, those, that time they spent at that studio, people would say, wow, you finally broke in. Right. But mm -hmm. what does it mean to break in and then burn out? Like, does, is that still breaking in? Is it truly breaking in? If you don't find like, is it finding a space that you're comfortable in? Because I would say that like, I, I'm, I have, I, I definitely didn't feel like I will say when I think about like my own beginnings in like 2013 in the industry, the feeling of breaking in wasn't necessarily there because I thought, oh boy, it's full of piranhas. Like this is a very strange place and I don't know where I'm at, but after a couple of years and I found a place and I ended up leaving my own feeling of breaking in just means, oh, now I feel like I get to do, I get to apply the knowledge that I have to the role that I, that I perform instead of kind of performing the role and trying to fit into a different system. So it's kind of like 
breaking in and staying in maybe but mm. yeah that's it's, it's a lot to think about much much yeah. to consider <laughs> absolutely uh so switching gears a little bit uh I was wondering a bit about Sweet Baby's process. So when you're uh, consulting a team to give them narrative support, what are the first questions you'll ask them? So usually what we'll ask is, what's the premise of the game? And what are the mechanics of the game? Like, what kind of game is it is the kind of vaguest way to do it? Because I think for, for me, what I'm most interested in is not like the beats of the story because that's going to change. Obviously, you know, if they're calling us six months out from ship, it's going to stay the same. But I'm thinking like a lot of the time when we're getting called for like a newer project or something, it's kind of spinning up. I'm more interested in kind of the premise and the structure of it. And then I'm interested in how it's going to be played out because too often I think people get wrapped up in the story of a game and go like, oh, these highs and lows and this plot and, the, and all the, the beats on it, they are what make this, this game exciting. They are what make me want to stay in this world for... 20 to 100 hours. And the reality is, is those are the things that change the most throughout gameplay. The premise of the game rarely shifts that dramatically. The characters rarely do because they're often built kind of like early and, and structural stuff kind of goes in, in early. And major beats and set pieces, much like a Marvel movie, is considered way early on because they're going to require the most resources to produce. So my personal thought on that is always starting with like the high level structures, Attaching it to the the mechanics that you have in order to determine what the narrative expression is going to be. So are we going to have a lot of barks? Are we going to have a lot of interactive conversations? Is there branching? Do we have cinematics? And if so, how, how long could they be? How many of them do we have? Are we outsourcing them or not? All of those questions for me are more relevant first before we I even think like, okay, what's the story? Because they're going to determine what story you're, you can tell and how you can tell it. So I go... What's the premise, I think? What's the general like vibe, idea, kind of character set? What are all the mechanics of expression? And then, okay, with those mechanics of expression, can we express the story that you're thinking about? And if so, then we can kind of keep breaking it out. But if not, we might have to revise that story. So it's usually kind of a, a very investigative process early on to say, not what story do you have in your mind, but what story is your game capable of expressing and what story is your game currently expressing? Wow, yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. So I guess usually like they'll come to you when they've had that pre-production time to sort of figure out like what technology and capabilities they have. I would say that usually, I would say that it's usually around time, like usually mid pre-production or late pre-production once a lot of those have been determined. I think that we come in in the part of pre-production often that defines what those narrative mechanics are. So we might come into something that says, I definitely know these characters are going to talk, but we might come in at the point where we say, okay, are we going to do that voiced? Are we going to do that in branching conversations? Does it matter if we can have like choices or not? Is it going to be one-off barks? We'll kind of work, work in a kind of looser phase with those. But usually like what we'll know is, okay, this is going to be say an open world game. It's going to be combat focused. It's going to be that. And it's like, if you come in and you say, hey, we have this incredible sweeping love story about, you know, two peace loving, <laughs> two peace loving monks. And then you say, actually, the only mechanics we have are like sword fight and gun. I would say, hold on. <laughs> are you sure you're going to be able to express that story of of nonviolent people through only violent means? Mm -hmm. And that for me is like 
I think a lot of people kind of come into it and go, okay, well, how are we going to justify the violence <laughs> and and say that the characters are peaceful? And that's what creates that ludonarrative dissonance that you get okay. where you go, wait a second, why why are these nonviolent characters actually <laughs> being violent? But for me, what I'd prefer to do is go, okay, well, we have a story that has a sword and a gun. Let's think about making characters that make that make sense before we try to stick to our, our love of, of peace-loving characters, but our mechanics of violence. Yeah, and I think certainly for me as a player, when I see a game that marries the game mechanics with the story and it feels like they're feeding into each other, it's so satisfying. Yes. Yeah, it's it's like those moments for me of resonance are the best form of storytelling in games because we're going to have, like for me, if the climax of a game is just told in like, a cinematic I didn't get to be there for it right I didn't get to participate in that moment and I didn't have that feeling because for me if we say that ludonarrative like dissonance is the the separation between I guess the player intent and the character action or character intent there then to me narrative resonance of course is when those two things align so it's when you are thinking a thing that the character can now do or when you're feeling like you should do a thing that you're now aligned with and you can actually perform and for me that can be as easy as sometime when I love a moment where I'm thinking something in my head and I hear the character say that because yeah. that's a little bit of resonance where you go, okay, they thought about this and it feels, yeah, it, it ends up feeling so good. And that's what we, that's what we're always aiming for. And that is something for me that's like, let's just build that into the original, <laughs> into the original purpose. And then we'll figure out the rest of the story because ultimately the story can change and often does, but the mechanics probably won't. Yeah. And I mean, sort of, I don't know why it's taking so long to say what I have to say, even though now I know exactly what I'm going to say, which is that you're doing this alongside your super talented team. And certainly creatives come with a wide array of perspectives and that can make it great, but it can also make it challenging in that everybody has their own, like, movie playing in their head of what this is going to look like yes and for you as the team leader how do you create a coherent vision and statement for your client so the way that we usually do it we have we'll have internal team leads who will lead other things like we'll have someone else who's leading a, a given project and i'll kind of oversee stuff or, or work with them or, or edit or kind of contribute and i think like to get around that what we have done is essentially Everybody sees everything. We have a kind of a bullpen model, um, not not physically in the office because we're <laughs> we're both office and remote. But the way that we we do it is kind of bullpen, where we might have like breakout teams or smaller teams who are focused on a given project, but everybody knows what the projects are and everybody has kind of a high level view of it. And for that, like that, the reason we do that is because we need gut checks as writers, right? Oh, you yeah. need to be able to say, okay. Three of us are, are, are sitting in the room with a client. We're all aligned. We're doing this thing. We're creating a script. And then because we're writers, because we are, are doing something like this, it's really great to have people in the room where you can go, hey, can you look at this? And you might not know every detail of the project. You might not know it, but you can easily go, okay, yeah, I know this is from this general section. I'm going to give it a read. And now we can have kind of like an editorial moment. We can have like an exchange of ideas that helps us all get a sense of what we're trying to do 
and then kind of edit each other and, and keep each other sane. And I think that's like a big part of it is the fact that we're always talking means that we're always pretty much aligned and we're always checking for that alignment because you're very right. That's the hardest thing on any project. Like writing is in theory, like it's not, the act of writing is not easy, but it is easier than that. It is the easy part of a project when you're working with anybody because when I sit down and I know what I'm writing, I can write a lot. Oh, yeah. But if I write a lot and I go to the other person and they say, that's not what I wanted, then I've wasted my time, right? Mm -hmm. And I've written something that doesn't fit. And then that burnout comes when they say, I'm so sorry, can you write that again? And then I might write it again. And they go, ah, again, I'm just so sorry. And every single time, it's no one's fault that the writing might be great. It might be an incredible script, but just for something else, right? And so the alignment is where the time and the, the stress and the tension can exist. So it's the number one thing I think that we're always thinking about, which is we will do it, like we're very deliverable focused in that way. Like we try to do a lot of documentation that says, hey, this is, this is it, right? Just to check. And then we'll do kind of like two rounds of that to be like, we all agree. It's about like always making sure we're ratifying things, always making sure we have like a, a document that summarizes something and just making, always just being on top of, on top of that fact and knowing that there's texture loss whenever people play broken telephone with the story and baking that texture loss into our expectations. Like that's actually something that has come up a lot recently where we're talking about like when we're working even remotely or in, in person, we need to account for texture loss. We have to just assume that the idea that you have is different from mine and leave enough space to rectify that later. Yeah, I definitely have experienced that just being as communicative as possible is so important. Yes, exactly. We're talkers. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Writers are talkers. Uh, so I guess another question I had is I watched your DD GDC talk from 2019 and I really enjoyed it. I thought you made a really salient point about you know, start assuming the players will seek new stories, no matter who they are. And I mean, certainly a question I've always had, uh, I guess, coming from a background that is overrepresented, you could say, is people will always tell me, write what you know, or create yeah. what you know. And my, you know, lived experience it's not something that's going to be new for a lot of people just because of how the status quo is. And I guess the question is, what can people like me in my shoes do to uh, encourage diversity while also being authentic? Well, I think there's a couple of things. So for one thing, I think it's important to think about collaboration when we when we tell stories that are not our own, right? And I think the biggest thing when I, when I talk about community and games, it's about being able to understand that you might be working on a project that is has a diverse cast and you should kind of go to those writers and say, hey, I have a character. This is the role they're going to play. I am comfortable being able to define that utility. But what I'm looking for is who are they? And I really want them to be someone from a culture that I don't really have a background from. And I don't want to make it I don't want to make it boring for the people from that culture to look at and go, hey, I, that's not me. I want to reach out. And so developing a character with somebody from that background, right, creates a space where you are able to steward, like, you take your narrative knowledge and still tell the story that you're aiming to tell, 
but get their insight and to shape that story, to shape the characters and to provide that authentic voice and contribution so that you're still able to guide that process, but you're getting all the authenticity there. And of course, within that structure, you have to be willing to understand like, oh, I might just have blind spots and I'm going to let you fill it in, right? Yeah. But that's also part of why I think about the storytelling process of make structures. And then even like when it comes to like, I think marginalized folks and diversity, we talk about it like, okay, bring people into this process by creating a structure, leaving space and letting them build. But yeah. we do the same thing for, for me as like writers or narrative designers or narrative teams on any game. I am looking for, okay, these are the broad strokes of a character, artists, you're going to fill those in because I don't, I'm not an artist. And we do it, we do it like that. But, but then when someone tells you like, Hey, you're not a black person. Can you talk to a black person? They go, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. But I can do it. And you're like, well, no, it's okay. If you can't, like, it's not as a thing. I think people go like, Oh, but that expectation is on me. It's like, it's not because you might not have that perspective and it's additive to have it. And then on the other hand, for me, when we talk about saying, write What you know, or if you say, I want to tell a story about like a white dude, then what I would say is, what is the perspective that you want to bring to that 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 is unique, right? Because I think that when I when I look at this is the problem isn't like often like, oh, this character is just a white person. It's usually this character is like a hyper like violent or, or masculine or just like cavalier about emotions like person, right? It's it's more of that archetype that is that is a problem. And the over for I would say that the the overrepresentation of of white dudes as gruff leads with emotional problems right mm -hmm. but if you said you know what i'm going to create like a white dude who's like a support class character or i'm going to create someone who's like specifically against this kind of violence or who presents in a different way or presents a different perspective that we actually haven't seen in a white dude character as much that for me is still worth doing because if i yeah if i if i write like there are plenty of characters like on on shows that otherwise have diverse casts where you go oh i haven't seen a guy like this before mm -hmm. and for me that's where like we still have a lot of room to grow the question isn't like why are there so many white dudes at all it's more like ev all of them tend to be like emotionally unintelligent or cold or or like unpleasant or in like a Nathan Drake, who again, I love a Nathan Drake, but we have a lot of that like kind of adventurer character. Sure. So it's more about thinking who who from white dudes don't we get to see? What, what side, and that's the other thing that always baffles me when we talk about diversity, because I would think like, if I were a white guy, I'd be like, well, hold on. Every character who looks like me has like, seems to be really like the protagonist always taking charge and always comfortable with, with violence. I don't feel represented by that necessarily. What do I, how do I want to, to put my voice out there? Hmm, that's, yeah, that's absolutely, I, I hadn't thought about it like that again, uh, but yeah, super true. Yeah, and I think that's like so much the danger. It's kind of when we talk, when people talk about like, you know, something is as simple as, oh, the patriarchy, which you think about as something that affects women is like, wait, hold on, though. It's like the patriarchy is also the reason that we have a culture around men not being comfortable to cry. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're like, that for me is the same thing where it's like white dude protagonists. Ninety eight percent of them are never allowed to cry, for example. Right. Yeah. We think about that and we go, oh, wait a second. That's actually part of it. It's the, it's it's the fact that like they're they're only being portrayed in kind of a certain way. <laughs> So it's it's it affects I think all all the archetypes and all of us and locks us into these things where we're like where even you can go okay yeah I might you might play fifty games with people who look like you but you're like oh these guys don't act like me in any way 
yeah, only like 10% of them are going to like resonate with me as far yeah. as emotionally. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. And for, for what I think about is like, if only 10% of a hundred or a thousand white dude games resonate with you, it that's why it's so narrow for somebody else, right? Right where you go like, oh, okay, if you're a black person, you have fewer to start with. And even then you're only going to resonate with a few because... A lot of the time, if I go, okay, look at these black characters, a lot of them are going to be written by white people. And it's not like, oh, they've done something necessarily racist or problematic. But a lot of the time, because they didn't have that extra perspective, the character comes off as very nice or very like well-intentioned, but they're missing a little bit of that, that resonance spark, that bit where I go, oh, this is not just a person who looks black. This is a black person. Mm. And that feeling is like is, is really great because it's the same feeling that you would have where even in, and I, I love to use Nathan Drake because he's the guy, but <laughs> like... If I look at a Nathan Drake, he is he is actually different in a lot of ways from the characters who looked like him to that point because he's a little bit more scared of what he's doing, because he's a little bit more comical, because he doesn't have that kind of like he's not really a dirtbag. He's kind of like a, a good dude. And in that way, he was different and more likable. Even from people who looked like him in other games. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's a character who's stuck with so many people. Sure. Uh. And I guess, yeah, a question that I also had was for you, I know you've, you've worked on games that are more comedic or more dramatic. How do you tend to balance that as a writer if you've got games with a bit of both? I think, so for me, the variety is really something that helps me. Like as someone who was able to kind of do contracts. I like to have that variety of different voices that we get to kind of use or different themes because some days you do feel like, I don't feel like writing comedy today or some days you're like, <laughs> I don't want to dive into some horror stuff. And having kind of a, a, a slate of different projects helps with that. But in terms of like the way that I think we tone shift a lot of it, it's, it is around specifically kind of defining a tone early and coming up with a sensibility that is almost not a cheat sheet, but like at least gives us like always having a reference where it's like, okay, this is gonna be funny, but it's funny in this way. It's not funny in in another. It's like that specificity and going, okay, what's the what's the humor of this? What's the specific comedic tone? I'm a really big fan of like I'm a really big fan of comedy writing. And so I I'm like slightly particular about it where I'm like, oh, I want this joke to come out this way. And having kind of like references for that and keeping those throughout the project and kind of like refreshing our memory I think helps so that when we have when I'm like okay now I'm I'm going to spend a day writing something that's like dead serious I can kind of hop back in check my notes and refresh yeah that's definitely a good way of spacing it out I can imagine yeah. uh, so I uh, I think now is probably the right time to go to a musical break for the episode. Usually I would go like half an hour in, but I'm just enjoying the discussion so much that it slipped my mind. Uh, so this is going to be the next track from Pachi Mochi, and this is called Gektra Giza. More alliteration. Uh, uh, yeah, so we'll be back with Kim in a second.
Okay, welcome back to Pixel Pizza. You just listened to Getra Giza by Pachi Mochi. And now we are back with Kim Belair of Sweet Baby Inc. And I was curious, I had a few questions about some of your specific projects. And I think the one where I first learned about you and your team was Lost Your Marbles, which is like, it was like one of the premier games for the Playdates. And I know certainly earlier you were talking about how to convey a story with certain mechanics and mechanical ideas. And it's such a unique console. When you guys were making that game, working on it, how did you approach it? Yeah, so that's such an interesting thing because it was 2019 that we did that, we did that project. And it feels because of everything that's that's happened since. Like, oh, wow, yeah. that was ancient history and so much <laughs> of it. Like even looking at now, it's like, oh, this is a different time. Um, so we, the game is uh, on the play. Yeah, the play date is like a little crank device so the game is essentially one of those marble slider games where you have to kind of rotate the rotate the screen to get the marble to go in a certain hole essentially and each maze has a couple different exits that are kind of like the I wouldn't say even good like they're weird also weird and third weird answers we tried to avoid like good bad and 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 other um, and the story is basically a, a young woman loses her <laughs> loses her dog on the first day of an internship at a science lab. Um, she is marbleized, which is machine that um, uses a marble maze to make decisions. So now she is trapped in this scenario where she has to use a, she is a marble maze, and mm. she has to do a marble maze every time she's trying to make a decision. And your decisions change the course of the story. So there's like a lot of different paths to take. It's a, I think it's like a 45 to 60 minute experience all told and it has you can replay it a bunch of times um but we kind of approached that as we we had never made a game before we didn't know what to do and we were also like this is a system that has a crank and we we don't know how to use it we've like let's try it so we decided to try to make a game and as narrative like as narrative developers we were like we're not we can't do a score chaser as well because we're definitely not gameplay people but we can hire some folks on, bring them into the team, um, just Ayla, Will, other Will, and Neha, um, and we can build a game that is story-driven, even but like literally story, like driven by its story and driven by its dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it was such a cool thing to do because it was, it felt like a a long game jam of us figuring out how these things work, kind of. Mm-hmm doing paper versions of it and then having it implemented and, and working with designers, like going through that process was really, really great. And what was fun about it was that we realized like what one of our strengths is, I think as a team is the kind of stuff we were talking before where dividing work up and figuring out what documentation, what bits and pieces you need to get something done. And so we kind of built, because we didn't also, also we're, we're hiring out, we want to make sure that no one's overworking, no one's crunching on, on a game that's on a play date, right? We're gonna have like, it's a smaller budget. We're not gonna have people overworking on it. So we have to kind of make sure that we're getting a lot out of the time that we spend. And that requires a lot of planning on our side. So we did it kind of to see, can we do it? And then, yeah, finished it off. Everything happened for years. We had the, the planet, uh, the play date got delayed because of the pandemic mm. and during that time, they had liked the work that we had turned in. We had been really excited by the process and said, like, hey, anytime we'd love to do it again. 
And then he talked to us, Panic did, about um, creating two more games. And we said, hey, the secondary, like, we did our game. We did a game that was narrative, and that's that was a cool thing for us to do. But our secondary goal with this company is bringing new and marginalized folks into the industry. So what if those two new games, we use the same methodology that we applied to Lost Your Marbles, because now we, we kind of have it down production-wise. What if we applied that same methodology, grabbed some of the same teammates to be kind of like veterans on it, grabbed uh, some folks like Julia Minamata and Zolivir Nelson Jr. to help us out, and then cast the game team with first-time developers. And so we did that, and it was amazing. We made um, Real Steel, uh, that's R-E-E-L-S-T-E-A-L, um, a criminal heist fishing game. <laughs> and we also made Recommendation Dog, which is a <laughs> which is a Zolivir Nelson Jr.-led um, project about a dog trying to help people get work and or recommend people for work rather and seeing those like I, I was barely involved in it because I, that was David's my uh, CEO his kind of area and I was mostly like checking for editorial things but seeing that process come together was amazing because all of these folks who had never made a game before were doing it. They were just doing it. They were learning on the job. They were figuring stuff out. They were getting like time with people and they were doing it on a schedule that made sense, that still created something that was additive and useful and that didn't burn anybody out. And it was like, oh, we can do this on a small, small scale. We can probably start like do this on a, on a large scale. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm so interested in that kind of process and figuring out what kinds of experiences can we build with teams like this that create like, Making those two games was an internship for a lot of folks, right? But it was paid. It was just it was paid as as game dev, and that is something I wish would happen more throughout the industry. That we go, hey, come and work on something and contribute to it, and we're not going to give you a label of oh, you're you're an intern or you're a like a diversity hire or something. Like, no, you're going to be working on this project. It might be a shorter term, and we might have more education built into it. But that's the role. That's the role you're fulfilling, and that's the that's the work you're doing. Great. Yeah, that sounds super like super practical experience for the people who were brought on for that project. And the the concepts themselves just sound so original. Yeah, there's there's so much fun. And that's the other thing that you get, I think, when you work with folks from outside the industry or who are yeah. new to the industry is you don't get that kind of calcified vision that comes from working on the same things or in the same mm -hmm. way for such a long time. Like someone comes in and says, hey, why don't we do it this way? And suddenly you realize, oh, I've been working in this industry for like 10 years and I just was doing it the wrong way because I, it was how we do it. Mm -hmm. And those things happen at every level in every discipline. And I, I see no reason, I see, I see no reason why we don't have more juniors, why we don't make more time for education. It makes absolutely no sense outside of we don't believe that the money is worth it. Like, oh, that's the only reason I think that we, that, I mean, that's, that's the only reason a lot of things are the way they are. But the fact that we aren't hiring juniors, the fact that we aren't making time to train, and the fact that we don't even cultural knowledge to be knowledge that is part of your job, it's, it's, it's really wild. Because I, I would add that when I left Ubisoft, I knew how to work, how to write a video game for Ubisoft. Mm-hmm. Because the system is is different, the engine is different. They have their own like like program that you will be writing in that doesn't look like anything I would use somewhere else. 
And then we go, okay, well, don't worry, you've made it a game at Ubisoft. And it's like, well, that doesn't mean that I can necessarily instantly work at the system at Rocksteady or Insomniac or anywhere else. I have to still adapt every time. And if that's the case, we might as well get more people who can learn those systems. Because <laughs> if I'm going to learn it new every time, I might as well bring a junior in. Yeah. And and teach it, teach it to them. Like, that's the other thing that scares me is like, we don't make time for education in our production pipelines. Our production pipelines are based on like everything going really well all the time, no one having any feelings mm -hmm. and no one having to learn on the job. And then people do learn on the, like, people realistically do learn on the job, but we don't say, wow, you did an incredible job of learning everything you had to do. We go like, that's, that's what's expected of you to do, to fill in this pipeline. And so, yeah, that's that for me, that, that area of education is, is very, very lacking in our industry and in our teams. And, it's going to be a real problem in a couple of years. It's already a problem now. Yeah, it's always felt very sink or swim. Truly. And I think it doesn't have to. And that's the thing. It, it doesn't have to because it's the, that, and that's why breaking in for me is like, no, you you can ebb and flow. You can you can work in indie. You can work in AAA. You can take a couple of years off. And I want to and or you can work as as some of us have like in a completely different industry for ages <laughs> and then switch mid career. Like, I think that what I want to do with Sweet Baby and with the industry in general, with all the work is just go like, yeah, the skills require effort and education and they require a lot of, a lot of, you know, genuine interest and, and work, but it's not rocket science. And even rocket science can be taught to people. There are rocket scientists, right? Mm -hmm. We always go like, it's not rocket science. It's like, well, okay, but then it is <laughs> in that it's a thing that you can learn and be good at one day. And I think that if we, if we just say, hey, this person can write, let's take some time and assume that it's going to take them a couple months to, to learn the story, to figure out how we write stories here, to figure out how their narrative director thinks of story, right? That time matters, but because of, of the, the bad way we've kind of run things a lot of ways, we just go, nope, get in, get started. We just want someone who's going to be able to do it the fastest and need the least. <laughs> it's like, that's sure. That's going to get your game made, but is it going to get your your team better? Right. It's a question of the long run. Exactly. And I I think like in terms of sustainability, we we live in an industry and a time when like I think the long run is is simultaneously important and being and not being considered enough. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So have you seen any recent games that you feel like I mean, outside of Sweet Baby, you're telling fresh, unique stories that people should check out. So I'm gonna—I was gonna say—I'm gonna tell you something that I'm playing right now. It's 200 oh. hours of Elden Ring. It's—I oh. <laughs> am currently wow. lost in the Elden Ring sauce. I am so deep in it. I love this game, and I love it narratively. I like it's—it's it's probably my favorite world and story of of past ages. Wow. I like—I—I—I I, I, I love it so much, and it's because—and this is probably because I'm a game narrative person so i'm thinking about like explicit stories all day i love the i love the kind of implicit storytelling of that of, of from soft games in general but elden ring particularly i i really enjoy um i think what this game does well is it has a really really fantastic narrative architecture things make sense in the world there's a, a history to it there's a backing that's full of drama and intrigue and they tell us almost none of it. 
because we are like a lowly tarnished, we are one of thousands of of, of meaningless or, or or insignificant individuals on a on a fated course to topple kings and gods of old that we that we are not even on the radar of and who may or may not have been on our radar and that for me is the story of the game and i find that so compelling because i think that like people who bounce off of that story or bounce off of that narrative are thinking they don't tell me anything about this god i'm supposed to be killing and i think of it as you you're why would you ever know about this god mm-hmm. that you're supposed to be killing it is un, it is un, like it's unknowable to you you are just a little guy <laughs> you're just a little tarnished and the fact that you are an unexpected person toppling like a millennia's old creature just by stumbling around because they paid a numbers game and you were the one who did it is the point of Elden Ring. And I love, I love that for me is like the peak of narrative resonance. It's that everything I do is, is in game. Everything I do contributes to the story. If I, if I wander into like a strange marsh and I find a transported, like a transportative portal and I step into it and I'm taken to a world of like swirling darkness and crumbling rock, that's the most interesting thing that's happened to me. And that is the story. And, and the way I, the reason I like it specifically with Elden Ring is how much it, it's modeled on so many of those kinds of weird medieval poems, stories, and, and, and kind of also George R.R. Mar- Martin style stuff where it's like, if you've seen The Green Knight, for example, or, or oh, I love the, that movie. right, or read The Green Knight, it's, it is a story where you go, okay, if I was, if I was, um, if it was Gavin, I would just be like, okay, so I went out, uh, a Green Knight said, I would like to fight all these guys. I ended up taking his head off. Anyway, he picked up his head. He left. And then in a year, I've got to meet him at this place. and He's going to kill me. <laughs> that if you told that story, you're like, that's not like, you'd be like, that's not a video game, but it is <laughs> because that would be the most interesting thing that could happen. And constantly stuff is happening like that to you in Elden Ring. Like I often think about um, when I'm playing Elden Ring, like you'll see a knight, or, or, or a, a wizard standing on a on a cliff, looking out at nothing. You fought demons, you fought like beasts, you fought everything. This guy is just like in the distance, a one dude standing on a hill, and then you approach him. He's a, the most difficult fight you have, and then when you kill him, you just take his stuff. And I think a lot of folks would go, well, there's no story to that. But I'm like, no, that's a horrifying story. You went, <laughs> you walked into these like strange moors after having, like with your bloodied sword, you saw a man gazing into the distance. He turned and fought you before you could find out who he was. And then when he was done, the only way that you learned about him was by taking the things that he held. And when you learn more about those things, you understand that he's been on this quest for 50 years and you just ended that. And you don't get to undo it. He's dead now. And that is the story. <laughs> Right. It's yeah. it's not the absence of story. It's the it's the presence of story. And I and I think maybe it's because that work is done for me in that in, in, in those ways or because I love the work of, of kind of filling in those little gaps or or thinking about what my actions have meant. I really resonate with it. That's so interesting to hear. I mean, for me, I had been kind of uh, Elden Ring kind of scared me off a because of the difficulty, but B because of, you know, the lack of like defined characters and am I gonna be able to spend 200 hours in a game where there's not a lot of like characters that are 
pushing well, me forward. I think what's interesting and also frustrating is that it's one of those games where it's like, oh, by playing it a lot, you come to know the characters by virtue of encountering them in different ways or hearing about somebody from a different perspective. But that I think is is it. And what I'll say is like, difficulty wise, it's not bad, honestly. Like it, oh. I feel like they've really adapted to a style where you can like explore the world a lot and get a lot out of it and then learn to fight. And the co-op really also helps with that if, if you're somebody who's like, okay, I wanna just get, kind of get through this. Mm -hmm. But for me, the the beauty of it is I also felt the same way early on where I'm like, I don't know what's happening in this game. Mm -hmm. And then I realized neither does the character. The characters doesn't like, characters is learning about these these historical figures essentially as they go through it. And I, I realize now at almost 200 hours in, I'm like, oh, I can now describe certain, like a guy that I killed in, in, in like as the first boss, like God, Godric, mm -hmm. I know him better now than when I killed him because I now understand that at one point he was cowardly and he tried to do this thing. I understand that at one point a relative of his, his did this other, this other thing, or I understand that this character chased him out of this area. And now I'm like, oh, I, I know exactly where he fits, but the game has asked me to just know that I am ending something, take what he said to me and, and go, huh, I wonder what he meant by that. And then a hundred hours later, I know exactly what he meant by that. And it's and it, don't get me wrong, it's a it's a it's a play style uh, that requires a lot of like time investment. And that's the thing. It's people say it's oh it's like a complicated story. It's not. It's just really long. It just really just takes a long time to tell it to you. And so if you don't, the problem with it, and the, I think the thing that's a barrier is that if you only play a bit, you do fall off. So you have to kind of get through that weird time where you're like, I trust that it's going to tell me something. <laughs> I trust that you're going to open up for me, game. Mm -hmm. That sounds really cool. You may have finally sold me on it. Happy to talk about it anytime. Awesome. Uh, so those were, I would say, the primary questions I had. Was there anything else you wanted to chat about? Uh, no, I think I'm I'm good. I'll say that you can, yeah, you can find us online at Sweet Baby Inc. Uh, on Twitter and Instagram, which we should update a little bit more, but also... You know, we do what we can. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I'm at Bagel of Death on Twitter and Instagram as well. Yeah, I was curious, where does that name come from? So Bagel of Death, um, when I was in high school, like maybe like grade nine or something, I did a comic uh, that was like, it was like a sci-fi comic. And this idea was that like an over-the-top comedic villain, which was all the rage, I guess, in whatever <laughs> this was mm -hmm. as a trope, um, he was threatening the hero with like the implement of his destruction. And it was a bagel of death because it was when it was 2008 or whatever it was. And so that ended up being like the, 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 the gag was at the end that he was holding just a normal bagel. And somehow at some point the actual bagel of death, which is like this green radioactive thing filled with like glass and, and, and violence was like accidentally in a bakery in France. So that was kind of the, the gag. But when I had to create a, a username, I was like, all right, Bagel of Death, and then it stuck, and now I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Bagel of Death. Well, that's great. You could keep something from so long ago. Yep. Uh, so I do have uh, one final question of the obligatory question before we go. Where is your favorite pizza place? Oh, man. Okay, so I think my favorite pizza place in Montreal is... I'm going to use Montreal. That's where I live. Um, there's. It's called uh, Gentilly. So no, not Gentilly. I love Gentilly actually, but I'm about to, I'm so sorry to Pizzeria Gentilly who has my favorite personal, but my favorite party slice, 
uh, is San Gennaro. I've got two pieces. I got the personal at Gentilly, and then I've got the kind of like Altaglia with like the big squares. Oh, yeah. This place, San Gennaro, does a potato and uh, cacio cavallo cheese with like a kind of rosemary. Incredible, unhinged, so delicious. <laughs> Think about it all the time. Oh, that sounds so great. Rosemary adds so much flavor. It really does. Okay, great. So that ends off our Sweet Baby special. And uh, thank you so much for joining me, Kim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Anytime. So we will see you guys next week with another cool developer who I have the schedule written out, but I'm not sure who yet it's going to be. But yeah, so stay tuned for that. And we are going to play out with one more song from Patchy Mochi, and that is called Wolves on Adastra. So see you then. <laughs>